Well, good morning. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, and it's a familiar passage. So that if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, we also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So as I started thinking about this, I thought, well, what is this temptation that's common to all man? Because, I mean, there's a whole huge amount of temptations. Things that may tempt me may not tempt you at all. I mean, we all have such an individual uh, personality, and we have individual weaknesses and strengths. So what is this temptation that's common to man? And as I started thinking about it, and as I was reading a devotional from Nikki Gumbel, it came to me, maybe the temptation that's really common to man is not listening to God, especially when we're in the midst of an internal storm. In a newsletter by Measure of Grace, it's a ministry out in Colorado, an article written by Roger Jones talks about this. His article is entitled, Too Much Bad News. Lately, it seems every time I turn on the TV or catch a snippet of the news online or in a newspaper, I'm bombarded with disappointing and scary information. The economy is failing. The stock market is breaking records plunging downward. Political attack ads are everywhere trying to make us afraid of whoever the other candidate is. Taken at face value, all of these messages can make us feel the world is on the brink of disaster. And I know I've certainly felt that way at some times, but it's really not a new problem. Again, in that devotional by Nicky Gumbo, he's talking about Psalms 81, verses 11 through 12, where God says, But my people would not listen to me, so I gave them over to the stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. And I think that's really one of the keys. Again, he goes on to say, The result of not listening to God is that he gives us over to the consequences of our actions. And so Paul is warning us not to let whatever that internal storm is that's going inside of us to tune out Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm just going to read 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So let's look at that history a little bit. It's kind of a history of not listening to God because of what's going on inside. Exodus 13 Verses 21 through 22 talk about that awesome experience. Of course, this is after the Israelites have experienced many miracles to get the Egyptians to release them from slavery. And so then this cloud appears, and they have this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they just really have this awesome, awesome presence of God just right outside the camp. But yet when an internal storm comes, which is recorded first in Exodus 14, they forget all about this. Pharaoh's army is heading towards them. The Egyptians have changed their mind. 
And so their initial reaction when they talked to Moses is, were there no graves in Egypt? Do we have to come out to the desert to die? Didn't we tell us to leave, you, leave us alone? And their fear was certainly justified. They had just witnessed this miraculous deliverance which involved the firstborn son of all the Egyptians dying. So everyone in this army knew or had someone that was close to them that was dead. And when you're grieving, it's very logical to blame someone else. And they had a very good place to blame. The Egyptians certainly would blame the Israelites because Moses is the one that pronounced that this was going to happen. So they could expect no mercy from this army, the most powerful army on the face of the earth that it was known at that time. What does Moses do? He goes to God and he simply tells them, the Lord's going to fight for you. Be still. And then this pillar, this cloud, moves between them and the Egyptian army. And there's darkness on one side, the Egyptian side, and there's light on the other side. And then the Red Sea is parted. Really, by God, Moses is the instrument. But, And I looked up one of these things. Uh, this one's by Dr. Dan Kellum, who does some statistical things. Because lots of times we think of the Red Sea parting, you know, nice little trail like when you're hiking through the mountains. But he pointed out if this sea had parted by only for people to walk across two abreast, when we're talking about the estimated three million people that the Israelite nation would have been, that would have taken 800 miles line and 35 days to cross the Red Sea. So he points out to cross that in one night, there would have to have been a gap three miles wide so that the Israelites could march across like 5,000 abreast. That would be quite an awesome sight. In fact, this group of Israelites up to this point in time, had, there's probably no other group of people in the face of the earth until Christ came that witnessed so many miracles. But yet, when they'd have that internal storm inside, they would forget all about those wonders, those signs, those miracles. Going down to... Exodus chapter 16, as Paul talked about, they had that same spiritual food. Well, why did they get that food? Well, God provided this manna. And you'd think they'd be grateful having this food that they could eat each day, just gathering this manna, rain down from heaven. They'd never seen it before. And again, the same person, Dan Kellum, when you're talking about three to three and a half million people, he's talking about you need about 1,500 tons of food each day. So we're talking about a lot of manna. To get a little visualization of that, he says that would take two freight trains, each a mile long, just to haul that much food. So that's a lot of food. And so they witness this great miracle. But soon they start grumbling because they're tired of this food. They want something different. Then in Exodus 17, again, Paul talks about how they had the same spiritual drink. And, of course, one of the reasons they had this drink is because they're in the desert. There's no water, and they're grumbling again. We're going to die of thirst. And that's when Moses is instructed by God to strike the rock, and water gushes out. And we think, again, when I visualize that, sort of a trickle of water coming out of this rock. But, again, according to Dan Gullum, this type of crowd, plus their livestock, would require at least 11,000 gallons of water a day. That's a lot of water. And to get to visualize that, 
He said that would take, again, a freight train about 1,800 miles long just to bring water. So that spiritual food, that spiritual drink, was supposed to point them to the rock. And Paul points out to us that rock is Christ. Because he is the living water. In John chapter 14, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, and we don't have time to go through all of that. But he asks her for a drink. And she ends up, you know, pointing out she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew, we don't even talk to each other, how come you're asking him for a drink? But then he goes on to point out to her that if she knew who he was, he could give her living water. And John 7, 37 talks about anyone that's thirsty should come to me, referring to Jesus. Grief and loss, sin, pain, that's all part of life. And that can create a storm within us. So I want to pick up with 1 Corinthians 10 now at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be adulterers, idolaters, as some of them were as written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did, who were killed by snakes. And we do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angels. These things happened to them as examples or written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So again, Paul's referring back to their history. In Exodus chapter 32, we have that golden calf situation where Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. They go to Aaron and say, we don't want to happen to this guy, but we need someone. So build us, build us a God. And so Aaron makes this golden calf, and they start to worship this calf. And of course, that's when Moses comes back. And many of them die because of that disobedience. Then later on, Numbers 21, verses 8 through 9, records this incident about the snakes. Again, the people are grumbling. It didn't take much for them to start grumbling. This time they were just tired of the manna. They wanted different types of food. They just said, we detest this food that God provides. And so the venomous snakes multiplied and started biting them. And the only way they could be saved was Moses was instructed to do this strange thing, to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And the people were told, if you look at that pole, you'll live. Again, a testing and building of their faith. And, of course, you remember the story of Balaam and the donkey who was hired to curse the Israelites. That goes back to Numbers chapter 25. But it's interesting, in Numbers chapter 31, it records Balaam is killed. And then in verse 16, it talks about the reason he's killed by the Israelites is because the Midianites followed his advice. He didn't curse the Israelites, but he said, I know what you can do to kind of mess them up. Invite them to your pagan festivals. And they did. And it seemed pretty nice. A lot of sexual immorality took place, and they started worshiping Baal. And they ended up with 24,000 of them dying. Balaam should have listened to his donkey, who warned him early on. Maybe things would have turned out different for him. So all these things are what Paul is referring to us and telling us to be careful. And that's what verses 12 through 13 is talking about is being careful that if we think we stand firm, that we should be careful not to fall because no temptation has seized us but what is common to man. 
And what I believe is the commonality is when we're going through a crisis, we're going through grief, when we're going through that pain, that internal storm, it's easy for us to stop listening to God and start doing things our way. Again, in Psalms 81, verses 13 through 14, God, through the prophet, says, If my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies. What are the enemies? The enemies for us is often that internal storm, our grief, our pain, our loss, our suffering. Nika Gumbel, again in that devotional, this is a quote from him. On the other hand, he promises that if you listen to him, he will act on your behalf. Going back to that newsletter by Roger Jones, he points this out. In the midst of all this concern, talking about all the things in the newspaper he was talking about earlier, and on ease, we're faced with choices about how we cope with stress, which I'm going to refer to as the internal storm. Anxiety is often a trigger for people to turn towards things that ease pain. And while I haven't read any recent studies on this, I don't believe it's a stretch to say that while many industries are, seeking, are seeing a decline in sales, others like pornography, alcohol, and gambling are increasing. And of course, these things only bring temporary relief and cause us to forget our problems for a short time. But as always, these things add up to the problem we face and make our anxiety and fear increase further. That internal storm gets stronger. And then we're back to where we started, seeking temporary comfort again and again. The truth is God has desired always to bless us, and his commands and instructions are given that we might flourish. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3 talks about that. Another book, To Me I Want to Be, John Ortberg defines flourishing as meaning moving towards God, its best version of you. And I would just modify that a little bit, saying flourishing really means whatever makes us have a deeper connection with God. Listening to Christ, obeying him in the midst of the storm, in the midst of grief, in the midst of anxiety and pain and suffering, rather than refusing to listen and keep doing things the way we've always done, helps us to flourish and move towards Christ. And I think the writer of Hebrews sums that up so well. In verse 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down, at the right hand of the throne of God. I think the writer of Hebrews pointed out to us, yes, we're going to face storms, but we need to persevere. And we persevere not by listening to what's going on inside of us, those feelings of anxiety, those feelings of grief, but we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, realizing that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, and he'll walk with us through this storm. But we need to listen and obey if we want to flourish if you would join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for all the blessings you have given us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you in the midst of crisis, in the midst of our internal storms, so that we can listen and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.